This is hell. Thank you for tuning in to This Is Hell. I am live streaming and recording that. Right now it's Tuesday, December 27th. My name's Lindsay. And this will be playing back this upcoming Saturday, which I believe is the 30th. Just to orient myself here, because Chuck's not here, and that's how it usually is. Now I'm alone, I'm solo. Gotta wrap my head around it. Chuck is on vacation. Well, I guess he's visiting family. Is that a vacation? I don't know. But he's in Michigan, and I actually have been cat-sending for him. Although that mostly involves just feeding the cats and... I have been enjoying watching cable television because I don't have a TV (laughs) in my apartment. And yesterday I was watching Storage Wars and having a great time. (laughs) That's a great show, except for I don't like how they just get to make up like how much something is worth inside the storage unit. If you're not familiar, Storage Wars is where uh, they auction off used storage units abandoned storage units i should say and then you know try and make a profit off of whatever they find in there but they don't factor in how much work it is to actually get rid of stuff when you're selling stuff it's a lot of work but anyways i'm here because we're replaying our listener chosen best of episodes and it's pretty exciting because uh all of the listener chosen episodes most of them were ones that I were also my favorite. Today's is definitely one of my favorite ones that I was here for recording, which was with sociologist Dorothy Roberts from September 13th, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. And yesterday, Sebastian played back episode from July with uh, Kate Mann. He wrote the article, Criminalizing Pregnant People, A Brief Retrospective, which I listened to yesterday, and it's pretty cool that playing these back-to-back because (laughs) they have so much to do with each other. It's like a child needs to be cared for after it's born. And um, I'm supposed to read the question from hell. Let's see. The question from hell this week is... Now that Chuck is away, what is the thing about him that annoys you the most? It looks like we have a number of new responses. I think that only one was read yesterday. So the next one, the next response we have for the question from hell, now that Chuck is away, what is the thing about him that annoys you most? Pete V says, he's way too reasonable. (laughs) Makes me suspicious. That's so funny. It's because Chuck is a Libra and... uh, (laughs) that's a libra thing is they're nice and yeah it is the thing that makes libra suspicious i agree with pete about that my sister and i were just talking about that she agrees too so that's three of us who think that (laughs) uh fabio a j l says the thing that annoys him most about chuck is that he has a sexier voice than I will ever have. Uh, next, we have uh, Bogey G says that he cheats on me. <laughs> I 
What? <laughs> I think this might this might relate to what Seb was saying yesterday about parasocial relationships, and I was like, I don't know, just like a relationship via social media or uh, the radio or whatever. Is that necessarily para, or is that just like a new kind of social, you know? If you're worried about Chuck cheating on you, I mean, I'm a little- that is a little para to me, maybe. <laughs> um, Adam A. says it's play guitar, god damn it. Play guitar! <laughs> I don't know. I don't get any of these. Um... <laughs> Okay, what does Krimsky, Krimsky Crackers say? He does not laugh at my funny answers. Really annoying. He sighs. <sighs> what can I say, Krimsky Crackers? I don't know what to tell you. Miles A is just finding out. Chuck is away? But where did he go? People are so concerned about Chuck now. Like, chill. Like, people are allowed to, like, travel. And not have to do the same thing every single week after week. He's in Michigan. Michigan. Living the Midwestern lifestyle. Yeah, I guess that's something I could have talked about to fill in the void. That it's two days after Christmas. Not to be Christmas-centric. One day after the last day of Hanukkah. I don't know. Holidays. I don't really like to celebrate any of them. I feel like my best ritual right now is not having any rituals. Just every day, just do it different. <laughs> um, okay. I think we have this file rendered here. And now I just have to find it. Find it. This is hell. Child welfare sounds like it's full of benevolence, well-meaning, and full of kindness towards children with only the child's best interests in mind and at heart. Family services also have the ring of doing something good for others, providing help and assistance to fulfill a household's basic needs and ensure its stability. But as our next guest argues, rather than offering benevolence, today's child protective services and family welfare agencies, along with armed police, impose not benevolence, but a benevolent terror. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy argues we should stop calling this brutal regime by its benevolent titles, Child Welfare System, Child Protective Services, Foster Care. The mission of Child Protection Services agencies is not to care for children or protect their welfare. Rather, they respond inadequately and inhumanely to the effects of our society's abysmal, abysmal failure to care enough about children's welfare. Sure, abuse of children and the demolition of families has finally made the news when it comes to indigenous boarding schools and the horrors at the U.S. border with Mexico, and that's great that that coverage is finally happening. But what is forgotten is, again... Dorothy writing, the United States extinguishes the legal rights of more parents than any other nation on earth. Yes, USA is number one at family destruction. Then there's the role of what Dorothy calls family policing in the larger carceral projects that include the, imprison, the prison industrial complex. Yet the foundational role of family policing within racial capitalism 
was overlooked in the discussion over defunding the police following the police murder of George Floyd. The answer is no longer reform, but as Dorothy makes her case, abolition and a complete reimagining of child welfare. We are very excited to have on our show today Dorothy Roberts, the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. Dorothy is also the author of Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century, which documents the rise of a new racial politics that relies on reinventing the political system of race as a biological category written in our genes and obscures deepening racial equalities or inequalities in a supposedly post-racial society. Dorothy's earlier writing includes Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, which received a 1998 Myers Center Award for the Study of Human Rights in North America, and Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, which received research awards from the Institute on Domestic Violence in the African American Community and the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. Dorothy received the 2015 Solomon Carter Fuller Award from the American Psychiatric Association for providing significant benefit to the quality of life for black people and a 2015-2016 American Council of Learned Societies Award. Follow Dorothy on Twitter at Dorothy E. Roberts. Find out more about Dorothy by visiting her website, DorothyERoberts.com. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. When we have discussed abolition previously on the show, it's often about the prison industrial complex. When guests have discussed defunding, it's most likely about the police. But there's another sub- aspect of that carceral project that is far too often overlooked, and that is family policing through Child Protective Services. Here to explain, Dorothy Roberts is author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy, welcome to This Is Hell. It truly is an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Chuck. I've been enjoying the introduction and I'm really happy to be on your show. You write that Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, published back in 2001, documented the racial realities of the child welfare system in America. At that time, more than a half million children had been taken from their parents and placed in foster care. Has that situation gotten any better or worse than it was in 2001? Is the system on the same trajectory it has been since 2001? Is it worsening? Is the foster care industry growing? Or is it uh, even maybe shrinking a little bit? Well, the numbers of children in foster care has diminished somewhat. Instead of half a million, there's uh, 400-something thousand children in foster care. And sometimes the system heads like to point to this reduction in numbers. But the fundamental design of the system is the same which is it only operates by threatening families that the state is going to come and take their children away and they have to abide by the mandates of the system, which is basically a policing system that tells them to do certain tasks that 
usually have nothing to do with meeting the needs of their children, or it still takes thousands and thousands of children away from their homes and puts them in a very damaging foster care system. So the idea that the numbers are shrinking and therefore the system isn't as bad or oppressive is, I think, uh, a mistake. It's still based on the same kinds of terrorizing of the same families. These are the most marginalized families, politically disenfranchised families in the nation. And I would also argue that there are ways in which it's worse because the system doesn't just take children away, it also inflicts massive surveillance on communities and the methods of surveillance have intensified. So many of these agencies now engage in predictive analytics. They hire big companies like IBM and SAS to collect massive amounts of information about families and their social networks and they engage in artificial intelligence and algorithmic ways of predicting risk that is even more intense than in the past. So on the one hand, there are fluctuations in the numbers of children, although it's still hundreds of thousands of children in foster care. So I don't wanna make it sound like it's any you know real dent in the numbers. Uh, but in other ways, it's more of a policing agency because of these new methods of surveillance. And also, there are increasingly tighter ties and collaborations with law enforcement and prisons. And so the connection, you know, if you look at the total carceral apparatus of surveillance and punishment as a false way of meeting human needs, it's expanded. Uh, and, and that's why it's so important to understand the way in which a system operates and not just look at child removal, although that's, you know, that's oppressive and horrifying. And, and again, the center of how the system works. But we also have to see it as this massive surveillance system that is deeply entangled with criminal punishment. So if it's punitive in nature, if it uses so much surveillance, if it uses these predictive analytic models, that would suggest that there is evidence that these kinds of systems work. Is there any evidence that predictive analytics, that this surveillance, that uh, the, this uh, punitive nature of child protective services works in providing safety and security for the child that they are supposedly concerned about? No, it's just the opposite. What it works to do is what it was designed to do, which is terrorize families, divert attention from the real needs of children and how they would be met, for example, by reducing poverty in America. And instead, it continues to promote this false idea that the way to keep children safe and improve children's welfare is by massive state intervention into marginalized families and traumatizing them and taking children away and putting them in a damaging foster care system. So it works in the way it was designed to do. It's oppressive function, 
but it doesn't work to do what it pretends to do, which is to improve children's welfare. You know, there's no evidence it does that. Uh, it, it doesn't work to provide security for children. It's taking hundreds of thousands of children away from their families, making them insecure. Uh, many children are moved multiple times from place to place. Many are put in institutions, con what's called congregate care, group homes and prison-like institutions. And there's so much evidence that foster care inflicts trauma on children, that children who experience foster care are more likely to end up in prison, juvenile detention, not go to college, have lower incomes, and have post-traumatic stress disorders as a result of being in foster care. So there really isn't, it's amazing. I, I cite the work of a professor at MIT, uh, Professor Doyle, who some years ago, I mean, his studies are a bit dated. They were in the early 2000s, but he is a statistician and he asked the question, well, is foster care actually good for children? And there's so little evidence that it helps children and lots of evidence of the harms of foster care. And he conducted a series of studies that looked at children who were either, you know, sort of at the, the margins, they could stay home or go to foster care. You know, it's hard to develop a scientific study to figure out if children are better off in foster care because you you could argue that all the harms that they experience would have occurred if they stayed at home. But researchers have tried to look into this. I think Doyle's work is the best. And he looked at children in Chicago, actually, uh, who and, and other parts of Illinois who were on that borderline of going to foster care, staying at home. And he found that the ones that stayed at home fared much better than the ones who were put in foster care on a number of levels. He even looked at, well, maybe being in foster care improved their safety. And he looked at emergency room uh, entries of children. And there were far more in foster care who had to go to the emergency room than those who stayed at home. So. Uh, that's just one example. Uh, I think it's also important to listen to what children who have experienced foster care and families that have been traumatized and hear what they have to say. And a growing number of them are speaking out and working to end this system because of the harms inflicted on their families that made their children worse off because this punitive system got involved in their lives. So, uh, all right, let's, I'm trying to come up with an, another reason why they might be <laughs> using this kind okay. of punitive system. Is it due to cost? Is this cheaper than providing the resources that would be necessary to overcome poverty, which is causing most of the problems that these children and these families are facing their lives? Is this more cost efficient? Absolutely not. And I, uh, first of all, we'd have to ask, well, what kind, I know this is, is sort of the kinds of questions that 
uh, capitalist approach asks, I don't know that it's your genuine question, but uh, we should, of course, question the assumptions behind that kind of question, which these are questions that are asked all the time. And in fact, one of the reasons why the foster care population has diminished is because some people, policymakers and legislators have realized that it's so expensive to maintain children in foster care. So actually it's the opposite. You know, people who are concerned about the costs have argued for reducing the foster care population. And I think that's part of why it has been reduced, not because of any true care and concern for these families, but just to reduce costs. But on the other hand, there is a huge investment in continuing foster care because it generates so much money. There's upwards of $40 billion spent in federal, state, and local funding to maintain children outside of their homes uh, or to take them from their homes and put them into adoptive homes, as opposed to the much smaller amounts of money that are spent on providing supports for families. And so this is a expensive system. The amount of money spent on benefits to foster parents or in the private foster care industry, the money that's given to agencies, private for-profit or not-for-profit companies that are in the business of maintaining children in foster care, uh, that money is far more than what's given through the system to families or TANF benefits, the temporary assistance to needy families. The money given to a struggling parent to take care of their children is far less than what's given to foster parents to take care of those children. So it's not cost effective at all. Uh, it's but there are many people who have an investment, direct financial investment in this industry. I, I, I also want to say, though, that, you know, a lot of what goes on in America in terms of meeting basic needs of housing and health care and education uh, and food and clothing, it's extremely inefficient. We know, for example, that we have the biggest healthcare system in the Western world. We spend much more money on healthcare, and yet we're far down the list in terms of how healthy our nation is. So the amount of money spent is not an indicator of how helpful it is in meeting human needs. Instead, it's an indicator of how people in power make money off of vulnerable, pe vulnerable people. That's what's going on in this system. And also, even more fundamentally, how systems like this, and I would include the prison system as well, and our healthcare system, uh, and, but family policing, I think especially, is valuable to people in power because it sends this false message that we don't need radical social change. We don't have to eradicate childhood poverty. You know, we don't need to more equally distribute resources, whether we're talking about healthcare or housing. You know, we don't need uh, affordable housing in America. We, we, what we need is to punish parents, blame them 
for their children's unmet needs and punish them, put them in a, in foster care, and that solves the problem. So even more fundamentally, you know, uh, the question of the finances, it's it's deeper than that. It's that it supports a racial capitalist system that relies on people's wealth and ability to make money and supports wealth accumulation of the most powerful people. Uh, and, and that's what this system ultimately supports, uh, including through the racist aspects of it. You know, the, the families that are targeted the most are Black and Indigenous families. And that's been the case from the very origins of this system. And those families uh, uh, that are struggling because of structural racism and racial capitalism, you know, the, the message is, well, the reason why their children are struggling is not because of these unequal structures, it's because they've got bad pathological parents. That message promotes a white supremacist approach to radical change in America, you know, to tamp it down. Uh, it, it's, again, one of the, it's, it's such a powerful system in terms of the ideology it promotes. And it does it in such an insidious way by convincing so many people that these poor, impoverished Black and Native children are being cared for by the system and diverts people's attention from the real reasons why Black and Native Indigenous children are have the highest rates of poverty. You know, it's not because they have bad, unloving parents and need to be rescued by white saviors. It's because of the unequal structures in our society. So, you know, long answer to your question, but I think we do have to look at all these different layers of the way in which this system operates to really understand what its function is and why so many people don't understand its function or fooled by this myth of benevolence and child protection and why it's so important to abolish it. You worked on reforming the child welfare system for decades, but then you became an abolitionist uh, when it comes to child welfare. The thing that we were, we, you were probably uh, told this the exact many uh, millions of times that, like I was told, you know, that the business runs a lot more efficiently than government. That if we just run government like a business, everything will be more efficient, more cost effective. Everybody will get better services. How far would deprivatizing child welfare service go toward? fixing the problems so people so children can be more safe and more secure is deprivatizing is profiteering the driving force behind the problems with the child welfare system could that reform fix the system or do we have to go farther uh, we have to go farther so even before privatization the child welfare services and the, the you know what it really is the threat and the practice of child removal and family separation have been used by the state to promote oppression of the most marginalized communities in America. So I, I don't think we can put it all on privatization. Uh, it, it's 
it, it, it is an ideology and a practice of family separation that has been used by the federal government for a long time. I mean, I, I trace it back to the separation of enslaved families, which wasn't, you know, a federal government program, but it was embedded in the legal apparatus of the institution of slavery. And we could also look at uh, the way in which the federal government, specifically the U.S. military, used child removal as a weapon of war against Native tribes uh, in the 1800s. And then a federal policy of child removal through the formal child welfare system in uh, Native communities to destroy them and assimilate their children into dominant white culture. So there's so many examples of how the U.S. state has used family separation uh, long before President Trump did, you know, as a weapon of oppression and even a weapon of war. Uh, but we do have to take into account in uh, more recent decades the growing privatization of child welfare and the uh, the way in which many, many states are engaging in contracts with private companies, some for-profit, some not-for-profit, to manage their foster care systems. I mean, there are private companies that are making money off of running state foster care systems and lots of evidence that that financial incentive, which encourages children to stay in foster care because these companies make money off of every day that a child is in foster care, it also incentivizes them not to pay attention to abuses to children in foster care because they don't want to have to deal with that impediment to their you know, steady flow of money. Uh, and this has been documented even by a congressional report looking into one company where after a, a white uh, little girl was killed by her foster mother and then Congress did an investigation and you know and spoke out against the way in which money incentivizes uh, not paying attention to abuse of children in foster care, although the recommendations weren't to stop it. <laughs> the recommendations were just you know greater government's supervision of these contracts. Uh, so I would say that deprivatizing it and just relying on government agencies isn't going to solve the problem at all because the problem is rooted in the very design of family policing and it, you know, it might uh, diminish some of the harms to children, but uh, to me, diminishing the harms of a system that is designed to harm is not the answer. Uh, that's not to say we shouldn't do everything we can as we're working to abolish it to minimize uh, the suffering of people entangled in the system, but 
our aim should be to dismantle it entirely and replace it with approaches that truly support families and keep children safe. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't at all want to indicate that by ending private contracts, somehow that's going to uh, magically end the fundamental design. The fundamental design was there again, historically, long before privatization became in vogue. Well, what would it take to have that historical context not ha- not be such a contributing factor to the way in which we approach child welfare? How do you erase the history of child welfare in order to abolish the child welfare system we have and improve upon it so it's better for children and families? Okay, so you don't erase the history. You acknowledge the history. You acknowledge that the history set a foundation for how this state, the U.S. government and state and local governments today approach child welfare. Uh, And then you work to abolish it. That's why we have to abolish it. The history tells us that this is why I think the history is important, not because we're looking backward and saying that's how it used to be, but we're looking at the fundamental ideological and design, uh, the foundations of the system that have not changed. They've morphed in a number of ways. They've mutated to conform to current uh, current political conditions. But the objective has been the same from the beginning, which is to control and dominate and punish the most marginalized communities in America. And those have basically remained the same. And this is another sign that the history has continued. It hasn't, it's nothing in the past. It's not an accident that the same families that are targeted by the system today, that is Black families, Native families, and impoverished and low-income working-class white families are the same ones that have always, you know, from the colonies, been targeted by this system. And again, that's because the ideology of it has remained exactly the same. Now, I could go through decade after decade and point out how there have been differences. So, you know, originally, when charities began to deal with impoverished white children, by putting them in foster care, uh, black children were excluded from these kinds of services to so-called services to families. Black children were more likely either to be ignored altogether or to be put in the new juvenile justice system and treated worse when they were there as well. Uh, And it was only with the civil rights movement and the demand largely by black mothers to be included in the various kinds of welfare supports that single white mothers were getting, uh, the coming out of the New Deal, where again, black families were excluded from welfare supports, uh, all sorts of welfare that was going to white families, black families were explicitly, well, it wasn't, you know, domestic workers were excluded from the New Deal 
uh, uh, welfare benefits. Black families barely got any kind of child welfare support. Uh, the numbers are just astonishing. Uh, you know, there was a handful of families. With civil rights struggle, Black people began to be incorporated into the so-called child welfare system, but it changed dramatically, just like welfare changed dramatically as more and more Black families were on the rolls to become more punitive. So now instead of providing services, giving uh, you know puny grants to families to help them survive, foster care became the chief service to Black families. And we see a rule, not only that Black mothers are getting kicked off of the welfare rolls as a direct backlash against civil rights gains. But the rule that, well, if they have an unsuitable house, as it was called, so couldn't get welfare benefits, then their children shouldn't be able to remain at home. And we see this huge skyrocketing of the foster care population. That's what made it reach over 500,000 children in 2000 because of this growing, paralleling the mass incarceration and the skyrocketing of the prison system, all together uh, on the backs of Black families, these punitive systems, uh, and neoliberalism stepping in in the 1990s with the crime control bill uh, targeting Black communities, the 1996 welfare restructuring law signed by Bill, all these are, you know, signed by Bill Clinton and uh, passed by Democratic Congress. Neoliberalism, though, the idea that that even Democrats were going to support privatizing uh, everything and we won't have welfare like we knew it. Uh, so welfare entitlement abolished in 1996. It becomes a behavior modification system, but less attention paid to the very next year, 1997, the Adoption and Safe Families Act. What do we do about this expensive foster care system with you know, over 500,000 children in it? The answer was terminate parental rights faster and put these children up for adoption. Uh, a private remedy for the struggles of Black families. And much of this was explicitly racialized, just like the Black welfare queen, uh, uh, a racialized message to support abolishing the welfare, entitled, federal entitlement to welfare. We also have this image of the bad Black mother who, you know, it's basically the same image, who doesn't care for her children, her rights should be terminated, and these children should be adopted, preferably by white families. Uh, by the way, we're seeing a similar message now, I know different topic, but with the Dobbs decision and uh, these uh, white anti-abortion uh, people with signs saying, we will adopt your children. So uh, this, we, this history is a continuing history. We can't erase it. It set the foundation for the system we have now. And that's why it cannot be reformed because it is a system that has always been designed to punish and regulate, surveil, disrupt uh, to, as a backlash to movements for freedom and liberation and 
and, and against white supremacy and against racial capitalism. We can see this in every single historical period. And so the idea that we can just reform it when you you can you re, you cannot reform a system that is designed to oppress reforming it just expands it and that's part of the reason why we still have this system today and why so many people are fooled into thinking it's benevolent because it's been reformed to make it seem like it's gentler, like it's reducing its numbers, you know, like they're not, it's not inflicting as many horrible harms, fewer harms to children than it used to inflict. Uh, although, as I mentioned, it's actually expanding in some ways, but then we don't get the fundamental radical change that we need which is what would actually support families, improve children's welfare, and keep children safer. Uh, we continue to tinker away at minor changes that usually come along with other ways of expanding the system. And uh, we end up in 2022 with a foster industrial complex that is basically relying on the same tool, which is we will take your children away from you because of the harms to them caused by structural inequalities in our society. So does the the kind of poverty denialism that neoliberalism insists that we have, does that kind of structural racism denialism that neoliberalism insists that we have, does that lead to only a punitive solution? I mean, do we have a choice? Does does society become increasingly punitive as it continues to deny capitalism's impact and uh, on society, on equality, and structural racism? Do we, do we have a choice? Can we address poverty? Or under neoliberalism, are we not allowed to? And therefore, the only option we have is a punitive option. Well, I, I cannot accept that. No, we, we, so, uh, so on the one hand, that's the message of neoliberalism is that we have to have punishment. I have long written about this, that punishment goes hand in hand with privatization. Privatization is not just the shrinking of government. Uh, even in the, the brief history I just gave, it shows how the privatization of meeting humans, human needs went hand in hand with increased law enforcement, with the crime bill, uh, increased behavior modification of people who need help to take care of their children instead of entitlement to benefits and in speeding up of termination of parental rights, child re Removal and uh, transfer of children from impoverished families to wealthier families through adoption. So it has always required, yes, I mean, I, if I interpret your question correctly, yes, neoliberalism requires punishment because the state has to do something with the people who are inevitably going to be suffering from the disinvestment in their communities uh, from the uh, uh, shrinking of the safety net 
and from the you know ignoring the ways in which our society has to fundamentally change in order to be humane and egal and egalitarian and so uh it it yes privatization requires punishment so in that sense the neoliberalism leaves us with that option according to that way of thinking but we could also reach a completely different answer which is that because it leads to punishment because it has the solution uh to meeting human 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 needs under the conditions of privatization and racial capitalism uh through punishment and we recognize that that is an unacceptable way of treating human beings it's an unacceptable way of relating to each other and it's it's that realization that it's unacceptable that leads us to say we have to abolish it uh so again you know uh, my answer to your questions about history and about punishment are yes <laughs> you know that's it's true that there is this foundational history it's true that the under a neoliberal racial capitalism ideology you have to have punishment yes that's true but the answer isn't a race history it's acknowledge where that history leads us and you know where it has led us the answer is that oh yes except punishment it's acknowledged that punishment is the unacceptable answer to neoliberalism and you know that it, it's it, it's the unacceptable necessity of neoliberalism and it's the unacceptable necessity of racial capitalism and that's why we have to abolish them including you know to start with i mean i have i my book isn't about abolishing all of it but it's about you know i i right now i'm focusing on abolishing a particular system which is deeply entangled with another system i i want to abolish the prison industrial complex but let's focus you know focusing on the family policing system and again i'm i'm trying to connect it to the need to abolish racial capitalism i'm not trying to ignore that at all but just focusing on uh the family policing system understanding its history understanding its connection to neoliberalism understanding its connection to racial capitalism and how it supports those then uh that should lead us to the conclusion that it must be abolished it must be abolished and replaced with an approach that truly supports families that truly meets children's material needs and no longer punishes parents because they are struggling within the conditions that are created by neoliberalism and racial capitalism you call this a first of all we're speaking with Dorothy Roberts author of torn apart how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world you call this a family policing system and very accurately by the evidence that you offer in your book and it's an absolutely uh, enlightening book um when you call this uh, family policing and i maybe it's just that people don't understand 
uh, people who are not a poor and within a poor black family that has somehow got into the child welfare services uh, view um, that this uh, family policing, they might not even understand how this family policing comes about. You write that every year government agents invade the homes of hundreds of thousands of families in poor and low income communities without a warrant or any other kind of judicial authorization in the name of protecting the children who live there. So a couple of questions, Dorothy. Is the issue a lack of awareness? Is just an information campaign? Can that do a lot to, and I know that you are for abolition, but how far can that go in reforming? Or for instance, can just a warrant or any other kind of judicial authorization, could that be a simple reform that could do some good, at least within the child welfare serv- uh, child welfare services. It can this be done? Uh, can the child welfare services be reformed through an information campaign or just having warrants or some other kind of authorized legal documentation for when there is police involved? Yes. So I would say that our horizon, our aim, our vision should be abolition. But I really appreciate Ruth Wilson Gilmore's idea of non-reformist reforms, recognizing that we are not going to demolish this system that's rooted in you know, over 400 years of US history anytime soon. And we can only accomplish it through incremental change. And those are reforms, but they're non-reformist reforms in the sense that we don't believe that these reforms are going to be enough. They have to be reforms that are leading toward the total dismantling of the system that's designed to oppress people. And so some of what you mentioned is absolutely essential. This is why I wrote my book, or one of the reasons I wrote my book, Torn Apart, was to inform the public about how the system actually operates and have lots of documentation about the realities of this system. Uh, The numbers of families that are disrupted, half of black children will be subjected to a child welfare investigation by the time they reach age 18. Now, unless you believe that there is something drastically wrong with black families, you know, something innate in black families that makes them maltreat their children. And I know that, you know, which to me is a very white supremacist racist idea. Some people do believe that, but if you don't believe that, you have to question why it is that half of black children would need uh, this kind of investigation by the time they reach age 18 in order to be protected, you might start to think maybe this is excessive. Uh, and why is it that black children are targeted so much? And you might try start to think about how this is a racist targeting of these families and not really a system designed to protect them. And lots of other aspects of this system that I think would open many people's eyes. And part of the reason why most Americans don't know about how the system actually operates is because they're not at risk of being targeted. The people who are at risk of being targeted, it's not bad parents, it's not pathological parents, it's impoverished parents, it's working class parents, especially if they're black and indigenous. And so because, largely because of residential segregation in America, I have found, I did a, a small study of this, that 
child welfare agency involvement is concentrated in black neighborhoods or on native reservations in big cities or uh, in uh, rural places uh, around the nation. And so people who don't live in those neighborhoods don't know what's going on. But people who do live in those neighborhoods, everybody knows. It's not just the families that have had their kids taken away from them. It's their relatives and their friends and their classmates and the people next door. Everybody knows how this system operates in their neighborhood. And they believe me, they see it as an invading force. And so uh, that's part of the reason why we have to educate people, raise a consciousness about the system. So yes, that is extremely important. And again, a reason I wrote Torn Apart. But also you point out some of the legal strategies that we could adopt in order to chip away at the power of the system. Family policing operates in the most abusive way. Uh, you mentioned when police come along. So they do frequently bring police officers with them when they go into Black neighborhoods to help to terrorize families and get families to do what they want. But it's not just police officers that are required by the Fourth Amendment to get a warrant before they search someone's home. Any government agent has to do that. And caseworkers who are going to investigate an accusation of child maltreatment, which by the way, could just be some anonymous caller who might have a beef against you and calls up uh, child welfare on you. And this, this happens all the time, but they can go and show up at your doorstep in one of, if you happen to live in one of these neighborhoods and demand entry based on some vague accusation that you're maltreating your children. And most parents let them in. They, they hardly ever go with a warrant. They don't bother to get a warrant. They just show up because they know the threat that I have the power to take your children away from you, which again, people in the neighborhood know they can do that and do do that, is enough to let them in. But they are violating the constitutional rights, rampantly violating constitutional rights of impoverished parents who are frightened or don't know their rights. And that's why some abolitionists like JMAC for Families, for example, is an organization in New York that has an abolitionist strategy. And one of its main efforts is to get the New York State Legislature to pass a law requiring that caseworkers give parents their Miranda rights, let them know they have a right to request a lawyer, they have a right to a warrant before they search the home. Uh, by the way, the American Bar Association just issued a report where it recommends that as well. And it found that child welfare agencies around the nation are routinely invading people's homes without a warrant based on their threats to families. Uh, and so there's, there is more and more awareness, more than I've ever seen in my uh, upwards of 30 years of work on the regulation of Black families. Uh, just in the last even two years, I've seen so much movement on this as 
people become aware of how abusive, powerful, and oppressive this system is. And we've seen a lot of attention being brought to, as you write in your book, being brought to what is happening at the U.S.-Mexico border with families and children. We've seen a lot of attention of late brought to uh, what were called, you know, indigenous boarding schools, whether here in the United States or in Canada. Uh, we've seen at least a lot more attention being brought to that that system. And you write that the child welfare system has unparalleled powers to terrorize entire communities, shape national uh, policies, and reinforce our unequal social order. Whether it's indigenous boarding schools or this foster care system, how much of a role, how important, how significant is the role of those systems in promoting and reaffirming and reinforcing white supremacy, white supremacy and white privilege? Is addressing the child welfare system a, a major step towards addressing white supremacy and white privilege? I think working to abolish the child welfare system, recognizing how it operates, whom it targets, how it functions, what its purpose is, is absolutely essential to ending white supremacy in America. It is a white supremacist form of oppression that goes back to the time of slavery. And in every period of US history, we can see how white supremacists have used child removal as a tool of disrupting Black communities, disparaging Black families, and in the course of that, hindering Black liberation struggles. We could see how it's been rooted from the beginning in the idea that Black parents and family caregivers should not have authority over their children. And disrupting families has always been a major way of tamping down resistance. It's both a backlash against it. And again, we can see in U.S. history how family separation has been a way of retaliating against civil rights gains, against liberation struggles. We can also see how it's been used as a weapon to target Black families and communities, Native families and tribes, and other people of color as a way of seeking to control them, to dominate them, and also, importantly, to send a message that the reason why these families are not succeeding in America, you know, why their wealth is dramatically lower than for white families, why their children are dramatically more likely to be put in juvenile detention, why they're dramatically more likely, uh, Black children, to have parents who are incarcerated, uh, why it is that Black children have higher rates of poverty. The message sent by the family policing system is it's because of their parents. It's because their parents are depraved, pathological, incompetent. And therefore, the answer to racial inequality in America is not to address white supremacy, because white supremacy isn't the cause of the children's problems. It's the, the cause is their parents. So the answer is 
more government surveillance of Black families and intervention into their lives, and if needed, remove their children, uh, and maybe better yet, terminate their parents' rights and get them adopted by white families. That is the message that is sent by our current child welfare system, which again is a longstanding message that has supported white supremacy. I think we have to pay more attention to how regulation of families is a tool of white supremacy and racial capitalism. I mentioned Dobbs before. I think now with the Dobbs decision, people are starting to recognize the way in which banning abortion and compelling pregnancy and birth, the regulation of people's bodies and their decisions about their reproduction, their family lives, is a form of oppression that is deeply tied to other forms of oppression uh, and, and, and structural inequities, inequities of race and gender and class and disability. And, and heterosexism, you know, people are starting to recognize this. This is something I've been writing about, again, you know, for my book, Killing the Black Body, came out 25 years ago. I have been stressing this, and it's recently I'm seeing that people, and, and it's not just me, other people, there's a reproductive justice movement that has recognized this for decades as well. Uh, and people are now recognizing the connections between these carceral approaches to meeting human, human needs. I think it's time, and I hope my book helps to emphasize how family regulation and family policing are so important to maintaining white supremacy and why it's so important for us to abolish family policing at the same time that we're working to abolish the prison industrial complex. Dorothy, you are a professor of law and a professor of sociology. So when it comes to the law, you write that child welfare authorities wield these powers to uh, supervise, reassemble, and destroy families with stunningly little judicial constraint or public scrutiny. Such extreme state intrusions in homes violates well-established principles of U.S. constitutional law that protect us from tyrannical government rule. Such traumatic assaults on people's most cherished relationships targeted against vulnerable populations constitutes torture under international declarations. If that is the case, then why does this continue? Why has it not been challenged in a court of law? Or has it? And it just keeps losing, as we were learning yesterday when we were discussing the uh, Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court does not always reflect justice. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we can see in the Dobbs decision, among many others, that the Supreme Court has upheld injustice. In fact, if we look at the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, it has been anti-abolitionist, even though the Reconstruction Amendments were animated by abolitionist struggle. But the court has never recognized that and completely ignores that in the Dobbs decision eviscerating the 14th Amendment, which was only enacted after the long struggle to abolish slavery in America. So uh, no, courts do not 
always uphold justice and the current U.S. Supreme Court does just the opposite. But there are legal proceedings that go on in the child welfare system. It's a heavily legalized system, uh, even though many of the constitutional requirements and even statutory requirements are ignored all the time. But there is federal legislation that governs funding of child welfare agencies. Uh, by the way, that, that federal legislation has always required that agencies take reasonable efforts to keep families together, and they don't. So even some of the basic requirements of federal law aren't, aren't followed as uh, as I mentioned, the the Fourth Amendment requirements for a warrant to search homes rarely, rarely enforced. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment protection of our liberties, which again are un, uh, uh, under attack by the current U.S. Supreme Court, but we still have uh, some Fourteenth Amendment protections that are recognized, and that includes the protection of family relationships. So that's routinely uh, ignored. The Equal Protection Clause, we're supposed to have equal protection of the law uh, without regard to race. That is routinely ignored in the targeting of Black families. So uh, these laws exist, the procedural requirements exist, but they're hardly ever followed and there is so little attention paid to these violations. Part of the reason is this myth that many people have bought into that the system is operating to protect children. And the claim we're protecting children becomes an excuse to violate the rights of children and their family caregivers. So this is the excuse given for why police are brought along or why the homes are invaded without a warrant or why children are taken from their homes without a judicial proceeding. Caseworkers come in and they snatch children away on the caseworkers' determination that child removal is necessary to keep the child safe. And then they're supposed to go to court within a few days. But, you know, I just received a report, a reporter calling me up and asking me about uh, an example of where it, there's routine violation of that and children kept in foster care without any judicial approval for more than what is required by law. Uh, I write about in Torn Apart how in some places police officers take children based on the idea that they need to, to keep children safe without consulting with the child welfare agency. And then they can keep them for a matter of days and uh, without any judicial review. And the child welfare agency might just let that go by. And if they don't bring a formal petition against the family for child removal, it may just, they may return the child uh, after traumatizing the child and the and the parents without any kind of judicial review. I also write about in the book how 
probably upwards of 250,000 children are reassembled in some way through what's called a family safety plan, which parents are pressured into agreeing to, to avoid going to court. But these are completely unsupervised by judges and caseworkers just have the power because of the threat they can make to tell parents that they have to place their child with somebody else or make other kinds of demands on the family to rearrange how they live their lives. And even if it goes to court, it is so set up against the parents. It, it's very obvious. There's a whole battery of lawyers on the side of the state and experts on the side of the state paid by the state to testify against parents. It's so unethical. Even the therapists that parents are forced to go to, those therapists can then turn around and use the confidential information that parents gave them about or that children give them in order to support separating the family. So the whole judicial apparatus is set up against parents. So the fact that this is a legal system doesn't mean that it's at all enforcing the law or law or justice because the laws are set up against the parents. I'll give you just one more example of how the law is set up against families. And that's the definition of neglect. Most children in foster care are there because of so-called child neglect, which means basically that their parents fail to meet their needs. It might be educational needs, health needs, housing needs. Housing is a big factor, clothing, shelter. And most of the time, this is entangled with poverty. Parents who fail to meet their children's needs usually fail because they just simply can't afford it. But this is the definition of child neglect in most states. And it is set up then to punish poverty. It's set up to punish families because of the social conditions and structures that make it difficult or impossible for them to meet all their children's needs uh, they're punished for it. Their family's disrupted. Their children are traumatized because of it. And so in just in that basic way, the laws regarding child maltreatment are unjust laws. And that's the, one of the saddest parts about this is that child removal is due to is often due to conditions of poverty. Yet that that poverty is never addressed. It's really just one of the most saddest parts of this whole aspect of, of all your writing. Uh, we've been speaking with Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. You can follow Dorothy on Twitter at Dorothy E. Roberts, and you can find out more about her by going to DorothyERoberts.com. I've got one last question for okay. you, Dorothy. <laughs> all right. I promise. Uh, and we do this with each and every one of our guests. It's what we call the question from hell. It's the question you may, I may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You write, we should stop calling 
this brutal regime by its benevolent titles. I was quoting this earlier during your introduction. Child welfare system, child protective services, foster care. The mission of uh, child protective services is not to care for children or protect their welfare. Rather, they respond inadequately and inhumanely to the effects of our society's abysmal failure to care enough about children's welfare. What do you mean by we don't care enough about children's welfare? And why don't we care enough? Because what it reminds me of uh, is a, a kind of a connection between our lack of care for children and the lack of care for the elderly. Why do we just simply as a society not care enough? Is it our fault or do you think that lack of care for each other is something opposed, imposed upon us? Uh, that's a good question. Well, we don't care enough for children in America. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any so-called developed nation, any Western nation. And it's even higher than in some places uh, that are developing, especially if you go into uh, the most impoverished parts of America, which are uh, very racialized as well. So uh, instead of devoting the resources, the investments, the structures, the systems that we would need to eradicate childhood poverty, we spend money on taking children from their families and maintaining them in foster care. Uh, and so uh, that's why this is a system that it not only inadequately addresses it, it is designed to hinder efforts to address childhood poverty. You know, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times just this morning about what should be pretty obvious that improving the safety net for families, and we have a, a very inadequate safety net, patchwork safety net, uh, and it doesn't even truly meet the needs of impoverished families, but we do know that because of recent increases in the safety net, partly because of the response to the COVID pandemic, more children have been raised out of poverty. You know, that should be pretty obvious. And of course, their welfare is improved by that. Uh, that we, we know what it would take, but there isn't the willingness to do it. And uh, I believe that there have been lots of suggestions, lots of paper uh, paper written, ink spilled over why America is an outlier in the world for how rich it is and yet how stingy it is when it comes to caring for children. And I believe that racism and white supremacy are at the heart of it. Racism in America and white supremacy have been an ideology that has divided the nation into white people and everyone else with white people having an investment being told you know they have an investment and too many believe this in remaining the dominant group uh, even if they're poor even if they're unhealthy even if they're plagued by violence, even if they are uh, subject to suicide and uh, substance disorders, uh, 
even if they're unhappy <laughs> that uh, that the even if they recognize the inadequacies of the way in which this nation cares for children and the elderly and other people in need, uh, they still would prefer to endure a nation like that as long as they can say that they are part of the privileged group. And that has been a major, if not the major, I won't quibble over what the major impediment is, but a major impediment to collective radical social change in America. You know, as W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out, uh, maybe it's even a hundred years ago now, that the working class white people in America could have joined with emancipated black people. In fact, white indentured servants could have joined with enslaved black people even prior to reconstruction, but let's stick with reconstruction to radically transform labor in America and the distribution of wealth in America. And instead, most supported white supremacy and the continued subordination and in fact, virtual re-enslavement of black people. That was a huge missed opportunity for continuing the reconstruction, democratic radical change in America. And it was thwarted not just by the Klan and not just in the South, but by white people not wanting to incorporate Black Americans into the privileges. That, and, and I'm not talking about anything that's really beneficial, but the investment in white dominance. Um, we always have a renewed opportunity for collective struggle. And uh, I think that some of the struggles we've been talking about today are opportunities for people across racial lines, across class lines to come together to topple these oppressive systems which harm everybody. You know, we we have a an abysmal healthcare system in America, despite spending more money than any other Western nation on it, or probably I, I think any other nation, period, on it, uh, which harms everybody. The child welfare system targets the most marginalized, impoverished people in America, but it harms everybody because it keeps us from building a society that truly meets everyone's human needs, which would be a less violent, a less brutal, uh, a, a healthier society for everybody in, in multiple ways. And so, you know, your question, is it imposed on us or do we impose it on ourselves? I think 
I think it's both. But I think a, a lot of what I want my work to do is to get people to think about the underlying fundamental false assumptions of these systems that people buy into and to recognize that by abolishing them, we would be better off just to be willing even to imagine what it would mean to meet children's needs without tearing them away from their families. Uh, just to start imagining that and thinking about other ways that we could care for children and families much better than what we do now. And what are the steps we could take toward that? So I, I recognize how deeply embedded and profound and powerful, I mean, racism, that even this is the subject of my book, Fatal Invention, I write about this, the, bi the false biological concept of race and how powerful that has been, you know, over 500 years now and continues to dominate science today. And many people's thinking, probably most people in America's thinking. But I think that recognizing the power of these ideologies, these ways of thinking also lets us know that if we are willing to abandon them and recognize that they're false, it also means that we could think in a different way. You know, we could build a society that's different. We're, it, it's imposed on us in a sense, but it, it's not impossible to think differently. It's not impossible to imagine to build something different. And that's uh, the hope that I have in, in the work that I do. It always surprises me that when I ask a question from Hal, somehow the answer ends up being, at the end, optimistic. I really appreciate that, Dorothy. Dorothy we have to be. Dorothy, Maybe if we, we recognize how hellish things are, we either have to just bury our heads in despair or we have to have some measure of hope, right? So I picked the latter. <laughs> Dorothy. I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. I really liked your book as well, but this conversation has just been, as I said earlier, very enlightening. Dorothy Roberts is author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. I enjoyed it as well. And you ask great questions. And now that I have your email address, I'm going to bug you for the rest of your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Take care, Dorothy. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Hello again. This is Lindsay. Chuck is still in Michigan. If for some reason you weren't here in the beginning that was an interview recorded september 13th 2022 with dorothy roberts who is an award-winning author and expert on the interplay of gender race and class in legal issues concerning reproduction bioethics and child welfare she's a pro professor of law and sociology at the university of pennsylvania you'll be able to find this 
SoundCloud and our website, and I just noticed earlier when I was downloading this that it wasn't previously available to download, but now it is, so go download, share it, send it to people. Get the word out about the how the child welfare system doesn't provide much welfare. That was a long interview because it was really good, you know, hard to end it, but... We do have a question from Hal this week. Now that Chug is away, what is the thing about him that annoys you most? I'm just going to leave the last few responses for Dan to read tomorrow. I don't think it was posted on Twitter before, but I did post it on Twitter during the show. So get on Twitter, get on Facebook, and answer the question from Hal in the next 24 hours or so. And tomorrow's interview that's going to be played by Dan that was chosen as one of the best of 2022 is from October with Brian Meyer, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian was on to discuss his most recent writing at the time, Media Spins Lula Victory as Defeat, which was posted just before Lula da Silva won the Brazilian presidential runoff over incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. Alright. Anything else I need to say? I think you guys get it. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>